Tonight, straight from the source. Right now, the numbers are coming in and the votes are being counted as an Ohio special election becomes a crucial new litmus test on abortion rights here in America, more than a year after Roe's reversal. More on that in a moment. Plus, all shook up again as a failure to relaunch prompts another reshuffle of the DeSantis campaign. Will this latest shakeup make a difference? And after reading Trump's new election interference indictment, a former official of his says that his blood ran cold. The Army vet's take on the possibility of Trump using the military to stay in power. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. And we start with breaking news for you this evening, because CNN can now project that Ohio voters have rejected issue one. This was a ballot measure championed by the state's Republican-led Congress that would have made it harder to change Ohio's constitution, to add an amendment. This was an effort by Republicans to basically change the rules before there was going to be a key vote on abortion rights come November. After seeing what happened in referendums in six other states, either protecting abortion rights after Roe versus Wade was overturned or restricting them. If issue one had passed, there would have needed to be a 60% supermajority to change the state's constitution instead of just a simple majority. But now that is not happening after the voters of Ohio have spoken. CNN's chief national affairs correspondent, Jeff Zeleny, is in Ohio tonight. Jeff, obviously, I know you've been tracking this all day as people have been going to the polls. They weren't sure what this was going to look like. What happened here? Well, Caitlin, we are at the Vote No Party, and you can see uh, they've actually been uh, predicting victory slightly before our projection, largely because of the strength of the early vote. More than 700,000 Ohioans had voted going into Election Day, and that strength continued throughout Election Day. So even as the uh, numbers continue to come in from across the state, we can now project that the vote no wins. And you can hear the applause behind me here. What this really is, Caitlin, is the beginning of the process. This is the beginning of a major campaign over abortion rights in one of America's classic uh, battleground states. Ohio, of course, has been trending red in recent presidential elections, but abortion now will be on the ballot in November, and the threshold to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution will be 50%. That's what was at issue here. This was a two-step election, if you will. Republican leaders were trying to uh, make it more difficult to raise the bar for what it would take to pass the November ballot measure. They wanted to uh, make a 60% threshold. Well, that amendment was uh, was defeated today. That issue was defeated today. So the beginning of this uh, next abortion uh, rights question and battle starts tonight in Ohio. And uh, there is a broad coalition of supporters. Again, you can hear behind me here from labor to uh, physicians to just rank and file people did not like the process that this went through. So vote no wins tonight in Ohio, but the campaign for abortion rights, which clearly will be a very large campaign uh, with outside money uh, pouring in, that begins in the morning for the November ballot question. Caitlin? Yeah, Jeff, I I guess the sense of what we've been hearing here is, is this about voters being upset that this was a vote that they decided to have in August, even though that Republican supermajority had just, you know, just voted to eliminate August special elections? Or do you think it's a sense from what you've heard on the ground about an energy there behind what voters believe on abortion rights? 
Look, it was definitely a mix. I mean, abortion rights was a driver of this campaign, there is no doubt. But when you talk to uh, many Republicans, we had encountered, as we've been covering this over the last month, we encountered many Republicans who uh, are opposed to abortion uh, rights, but they do not believe that uh, this summertime special election was the way to change the state constitution. Two former Republican governors, Bob Taft and John Kasich, uh, have been campaigning across the state saying that the state constitution should not be changed in this way. The threshold should not be raised. So there definitely was a sense. Uh, some described it as a power grab. We talked to Secretary of State Frank LaRose today. He dismissed that. He said clearly this was not an attempt to push something through. Well, he may have been right about that because the reality is the vote no uh, proponents came out in large, large numbers to support this. But it was about abortion rights, also about minimum wage. There's going to be a question about uh, raising the minimum wage on the ballot perhaps next year. And this was also part of that. But there is no doubt that Ohio now stands in the list of uh, states like Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, in uh, sending a loud message on abortion rights. But again, this is one step of the process. The real question happens in November when abortion is on the ballot here in Ohio. Yeah, Caitlin. and of course, the questions for the implications of that. Jeff Zeleny, thank you. We'll check back in with you. And we're going to speak to Democratic Ohio Congressman Chantel Brown in just a moment. But I want to start tonight with Mike Gonadakis. He is the president of the Ohio Right to Life Group. Mike, obviously, you were hoping that, that this was going to pass tonight. Why did this fail? Well, uh, Caitlin, thanks for having me on your show. You know, look, there's still over 7,000 precincts that still need to have their results turned in. We could, we're expecting another million and a half votes. So we're not ready to call it on our side just yet. You know, we still think that the votes are out there. We're really good at same-day voting in the Republican Party. So we're still holding out. We don't believe that the race should have been called this early. But here we are today. And, um, you know, the, the no side is winning, of course. But um, at the end of the day, we still want to count all of our votes. Do you still think there's a chance? I, I do. I think 7,000 precincts. It's not in the nation, but just in the state of Ohio. So there is still time. You know, we're going we're gonna to let the process play out and then we'll see where we're at. But at the end of the day, you know, we've been laser focused on November since January. This was just step one in the process and we'll be ready to go come November. Well, I'll say CNN is obviously really accurate with, the, with these projections. We don't make these early. We make these when we have a very good assessment uh, of what the vote looks like on the ground. I mean, but you say you're still waiting uh, to see the final call. I mean, when this final call comes through, if it has failed, why do you think it, it failed? Look, this was a battle worth having. We needed to have a, a decision with the state of Ohio, all 88 counties. Look, do we want to protect our Constitution from outside special interests, whether they be liberal or conservative special interests, or do we want our Constitution to be for sale? Look, in the state of Illinois, they have a 60% threshold to change their Constitution. And we said if it's good enough for the blue state of Illinois, shouldn't it be good enough for the red state of Ohio? Voters will decide tonight, but it was a battle worth having as a, as a question we should have all asked tonight, and we did. And the voters will respond, and the voters always get it right. But is that what it's about? Is it about special interests? Because, I mean, even the Ohio Secretary of State, Secretary of State Frank LaRose said, quote, this is 100 percent about keeping a radical pro-abortion amendment out of our Constitution. Did that hurt your efforts here to get this to pass? No, look, the strength of our side, our yes side, was the diversity of our coalition. For myself and my wife, Amy, of course, 100% about abortion and uh, not have enshrining late-term abortion in our state constitution. But our Second Amendment friends were involved, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce, the Ohio Farm Bureau. We were all together on this issue tonight and vote yes on issue one. But the Secretary of State made it about abortion. Do you think that's why it failed? 
No, no, not at all. Look, the voters are smart enough. They know abortion's just the tip of the spear this November. We knew they qualified for the ballot weeks ago, so we knew this was coming. And when they're done, when the special dis, uh, interests are done with us, they're going to come for the Second Amendment. They're going to come, as you said, for minimum wage and so many other issues. Our farming industry, agriculture's next. So we had a chance tonight, and we'll still see how, what the, uh, the results of this election, whether we protect our Constitution or not. But it's bigger than abortion. It's about our way of life. We're a Midwestern state with Midwestern values, and we have a chance here to protect our Constitution and just be like, like other states like Illinois. But what do you say to people who are critical of the timing of this? I mean, even a former Republican governor of the state, Bob Taft, said that a question this big should go to voters in November, not in a summer special election, which the Republican supermajority there had just voted to eliminate. I mean, did they mess this up in the camp of people like you who are trying to get this passed by scheduling this vote in August and not doing so in November? Yeah, no, I, I look, at the end of the night, we've had a great voter turnout today. Look, in all 88 counties, uh, early voting, same-day voting has been tremendous. So the voters knew there was an election. You know, we didn't lose any ground here. I mean, we're, we're approaching gubernatorial turnouts here in, in a lot of counties. So voters are smart. They knew that there was one issue on the ballot. There's no city council races or other races. So the voters are smart. They knew that there was an election today, and they responded. We'll see here in, a, in a 45 minutes to an hour what the final results may or may not be. But uh, the fact that it was in August, I don't think weighed one way or the other. Well, I think just to remind our viewers, CNN has called this and says that this vote has failed. I know you said that you're still waiting to hear it. Uh, what do you think this f says about what's going to happen come November when that amendment about protecting abortion rights is on the ballot? Do you think that this means it, it could pass? Uh, no, you know, as Jeff just said uh, in the earlier report, that uh, there are there are a lot of Republicans that are pro-life that uh, may have voted no on this uh, issue tonight that are, will be with us shoulder to shoulder come November. Look, we have marijuana and abortion on the ballot this November coming up, and I just believe our faith-based community in all 88 counties will reject both. You don't think any of this is a is a message from from voters that Republicans have misjudged how abortion plays in politics? You know, I don't think so. You know, in June of 2022, the Dobbs decision came out, and 90 days later, Governor Mike DeWine, a pro, our pro-life governor, was reelected with 64% of the vote, and re pro-life Republicans won entirely down the ballot in Ohio. That's just 90 days after the Dobbs decision. So, if there was going to be some tsunami of pro-choice voters, it would have happened in 2022, and it just never occurred. It, we did see that when it drove, of course, what many expected was going to be a Republican red wave in the midterms, and that didn't happen. Mike Gonadakis, we'll see what happens uh, come November with that measure in your state. President of Ohio Right to Life, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for more on this, I want to bring in Ohio Democratic Congressman Chantel Brown. Thank you so much for being here, Congressman. I mean, what do you, what do you make? Let's just start with the idea that this has failed, that this issue has failed, and that obviously uh, abortion advocates wanted this, those who favor having choices, having abortion, be able, people to be able to make those decisions, wanted this to fail. What's your response to that tonight? Well, first and foremost, thank you for having me. And I want to thank the voters and the volunteers who showed up and showed out in Ohio for this, uh, what was a rushed, in, in my opinion, an illegal election. I think what it shows is that the power remains in the hands of the people. Issues are still important and that messaging matters. Yeah, what do you make of what Mike just said? He was saying he doesn't think the timing of here had an effect. The fact that it was a special election happening in August. This was the only issue that voters were voting on and casting their ballots about tonight. Do you think that is why this failed? 
I think it failed or it is going to fail because people are paying attention um, despite their suppressive efforts to try to hold an election in what I would describe as a sneak attack. People were paying attention. Um, I'm so grateful of the number of voters that showed up and showed out early in Ohio to make their voices heard. This was about protecting a 100 year precedent that had been set in Ohio, a simple majority rule. Their efforts to try to raise the threshold to 60 percent. Um, for future elections, as well as changing the uh, requirements to get a citizen-led initiative on the ballot were really sinister and sadistic. I mean, when you think about the fact that currently right now we require 44 counties of the 88 to get signatures to get something on the ballot, and they wanted to change it to 88. That means one single county could have held up an entire constitutional amendment for the entire state. And so that is not democracy. That is not representative of what the people in Ohio wanted. This was about freedom. And I think the people of Ohio demonstrated that they wanted to protect their right to make their own health care decisions. And that's what this barometer and litmus test demonstrates in the state. And I believe history has proven Ohio is the pathway to victory when it comes to American politics. And so we look at this as a litmus test and we are thankful that when the votes are all counted, that this issue will have failed and we will not only have saved democracy in Ohio, but potentially across the country. Do you think this this means that that vote in November on protecting abortion rights is going to succeed? I am um, optimistic. Listen, we have to take each election one at a time. But what we know is currently polling indicates that 58 percent of Ohioans would want to enshrine and protect the right to make your own health care decisions. And despite the uh, rep- extreme MAGA Republicans sneak attack to try to make that no longer the case, the people again showed up and were paying attention and they made their voices heard despite the efforts to try to silence the voice of the voters. I want to ask you about a poll that CNN came out with today on abortion that shows 64 percent, a majority of U.S. adults say they disapprove, who say that they disapprove of last, the ruling, um, essentially believe that, um, essentially we're arguing that they don't believe that enough members of your party or of those who favor abortion rights have done enough to protect it, whether at a state level or, or on a federal level. I mean, what do you make of that? And how can you how can you change those voters' minds? Well, I think we saw, uh, we got a taste of that today. Listen, we do agree with the majority of voters. We passed legislation in the House that was uh, stalled at the Senate. But I want to say this, um, when the Dobbs decision was made, Ohio was one of the states that had a 10-year-old rape victim who had to flee the state to go to uh, uh, Indiana to access health care, to access an abortion. And so when we think about that, when we think about um, issues around our state, this election was critical to helping people make that decision. And I think it's also important to point out that this was a nonpartisan, if you will, result. Democrats and Republicans alike believe in protecting um, the one person, one vote, simple majority rule. So despite what uh, polls and uh, across the nation may say as it relates to Republican versus Democrats, when it came to this issue of issue one, we were able to bring both Democrats and Republicans together. And that demonstrates um, what happens when the people come together, the votes are successful and the uh, country succeeds. Yeah. And we should note that abortion law that you noted there is on hold right now. It's being reviewed uh, by your state Supreme Court. Congresswoman Chantel Brown, thank you for joining us on this breaking news tonight.
Thank you for having me. And we'll have more about what this vote means on a national level when we return. Not just what is happening in Ohio, but what is what are the ramifications for nationwide? Plus, there has been a major leadership shakeup for the DeSantis campaign as the presidential hopeful is struggling to catch up to the Trump train. Breaking news tonight, CNN has projected that Ohio voters have rejected an extraordinary attempt by the Republican supermajority in that state that would make it harder to change the state's constitution. This was an effort to change the rules in a rare August special election that would have happened before a vote that is going to happen this November on protecting abortion rights. It's a measure that is going to be on the ballot then. Tonight, this was the only measure that voters in Ohio were voting on. Republicans in the state have even admitted that it was about abortion. At least Ohio's Secretary of State has. For more on these breaking results that we are just getting in, let's bring in Jamal Simmons, former communications director to Vice President Harris, and a Democratic strategist, along with Republican strategist and pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Let's start with you, since we are looking at these numbers. I mean, there were questions of, of what this was going to look like. We got the numbers in pretty quickly and pretty overwhelmingly. These voters have rejected this. This is a wake up call to Republicans on two fronts. The first is that the problems politically that they are facing in a post row world have not gone away. They have still not as a party figured out a message on abortion. When you ask Democrats, what's your position on abortion? They say it's between a woman and her doctor. And they rarely sort of get pushed on the, well, how late does that mean? Any kinds of questions. But for Republicans, they're still getting bogged down in the, well, is it 15 weeks? Is it six weeks? Is it eight weeks? What are the exceptions? Is it federal? Is it state? And there's no coherent answer. The second thing that Republicans, I think, need to wake up to is that the patterns of who turns out in very low turnout elections have changed. The Democratic coalition has really been fired up by this issue, and they are turning out in elections that previously it was much harder for the Democratic Party to turn people out in. Meanwhile, Republicans, their coalition now consists of a lot more voters that are hard to drag out to the polls when Donald Trump's not on a ballot. And that's a big challenge. Well, it'll also be fascinating to see with the, the demographic breakdown of how this voted, who voted here and how this failed and who was responsible for that. When you heard from Mike Donagakis, he's obviously the president of Ohio's Right to Life group. He wanted this to pass because they want that threshold to be higher come November when voters are going to be voting on whether to enshrine abortion rights. But he's arguing it's not just about abortion. I mean, do you think that, it's, that it is about abortion? What's the message that you're reading from this? It's about abortion, but abortion also as, a, as a, the linchpin to an America that he doesn't particularly probably want, right? Here's the problem. The, the Republicans are trying to go around the country and change the rules of the game as they see themselves kind of losing the cultural arguments nationally. So we've seen it in North Carolina where they take away power from the governor when the Republicans win the state legislature. Do the same thing in Wisconsin when there's a Democratic governor elected. So we're seeing this trend happen around the country where they're changing the rules of the game in the middle of the game. People don't like that. I mean, Americans are pretty much raised that when you know the rules, you play by the rules, you win or you lose. And when you take a look at what's happening on abortion, there's a silent army out there. And it's not just Democrats. What we found when I was at the White House last year is we knew that there were a lot of women, many of them probably voted for Republicans, who would support a Democratic initiative to keep abortion legal. We saw it in uh, Kansas. In, uh, the Dobbs happened in June. In a Kansas vote in August, we saw Republicans stand up and say they want to keep abortion legal. And then we saw it again in Michigan in 2022 during the midterms. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we were looking at this map earlier because 
some people may see this and say, oh, well, it's just Ohio. This isn't relevant to me. But obviously, this has national implications. I mean, look at what, what we did see. This was states that rejected measures to restrict abortion rights. Kansas, as you mentioned, Kentucky, Montana, protected the right to abortion. California, Vermont, Michigan. I mean, with this being on the ballot come November, do you think Republicans in Ohio and, and people like Mike Donagakis are worried that, that this means that could pass? Absolutely. And bear in mind that Ohio is no longer thought of as a pure kind of swing state. When I first worked in politics, I felt like I was doing focus groups in Columbus, Ohio, like every week, because that was the swing part of the swing state. And now Ohio votes like Texas at a national level. Now, it's going to be really interesting next November when you have Sherrod Brown up on the ballot. You know, Republicans think that maybe they can pick up a Senate seat there. There's going to be a ton of money spent in that state. But Republicans, I think, have now need to wake up. You can't just take for granted that even these states that have moved quite red during the Trump era will necessarily always vote with you on every issue. In CNN's own polling that just came out today, about a third of Republican respondents said that they disagreed with the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe. The politics of this issue are much more complicated than red and blue. Yeah, and the state's Republican governor, I should note, supported, wanted this to pass. He voted for this, I believe. What were you going to say? I was going to say, in Kansas, when the vote uh, happened there, Donald Trump won Kansas 56-41, right? If you're losing an abortion vote in Kansas <laughs> and you're losing again in, uh, in Ohio, which looks like it's maybe closer to 58, 59, 60%, these are not like small losses. It's not just a turnout campaign. This is really about people saying, not today, not on my watch. We're not, ha- we're not having this. But right if now. you're in the numbers game, which all politicians are, and they're looking what happened in Kansas, they're looking what happened in Montana and California and Vermont and Michigan, tonight in Ohio, I mean, at what point does that break through to them that, that Republicans does not play in elections like they think it does? I mean, I, from my perspective, this message should have been received the day after the 2022 midterms. But it seems as though Republicans, I'm hopeful, will take a lesson from this and say, we need to find either a more coherent message on the issue of abortion itself that is not so alienating to young women, that is not so alienating to the swing voters who might be with us, even on some other cultural issues, that there has got to be a rethinking of the strategy, period. I'll tell you one place that's not going to help, talking about the mayors of slavery, right? So DeSantis talking about that, putting that into the, uh, uh, into the Florida Education Initiative. This is not the kind of conversation Americans want to have. There are some of these issues that I think we as a country have decided we know the answer to these issues. We, we, we can argue about a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, but we know the answer to these issues. Why are the Republicans trying to open these up as they begin to take majorities in some of these key states? So I'm curious, what do you think is going to happen in Arizona? Because today an abortion rights group there launched this, this bid to, to enshrine abortion rights there, like a, a first step essentially at putting it on the ballot. It's not there yet. Uh, Does that help mobilize Democrats in Arizona who maybe next November would not be as enthusiastic about voting for President Biden in his reelection effort? But maybe this is something that would drive them to the polls. It drives them to the polls. But I I will say this again. I think it's the litany of all the things that are coming together. The affirmative action vote, I think, helps with African-American voters and some liberal whites to get them more more engaged and to pay attention to it. The abortion vote crosses party lines because it's not just an ideological, a a partisan issue, it's an ideological issue. So the litany of these things is saying to people, the Republican Party just may not be on the side of the kind of big multicultural America that we all thought we were on the path to having it's really on the side of a kind of an America, maybe it's the 1950s, maybe it's the 1890s. We don't know, but it's not the America that we're looking for today. Jamal Simmons, Kirsten Solzi-Sanderson, thank you both for being here on that breaking news. (laughs)
In the presidential race, as we were just mentioning, there is a sign of trouble for Ron DeSantis. Can his campaign survive yet another shakeup? We'll find out because another shakeup just happened. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is restructuring his campaign team again. For the third time in less than a month, the governor of Florida announced another staff change to his team, removing his campaign manager and instead replacing her with a loyalist. In mid-July, he fired about a dozen staffers. Then two weeks later, cleaned house again amid concerns over how much money his campaign was spending. DeSantis has been struggling financially and unable to show growth when it comes to polls and whether or not he's able to compete with the Republican frontrunner, former President Donald Trump. Mark Caputo is a national political reporter for The Messenger. He broke this story today. Mark, thanks for joining me tonight. Obviously, firing a campaign manager is never a good sign for any candidate, no matter what election uh, you are running in. What is going on here with the DeSantis campaign? Uh, Well, the question is whether it's the third time is the charm. And you've just seen this sort of slow motion refusal to rip the Band-Aid off quickly and kind of fess up acknowledge some of the problems he had from his financial arrangements, uh, the assumptions they made in building the budget and hiring staff, to fundraising, and also to his media strategy. Now, you've seen all of those things change, and the final thing that changed here was over a period of time, you heard a number of donors, a number of supporters, a number of advisors to DeSantis say, look, you really have to replace the campaign manager. Now, not all of this should fall on campaign manager or outgoing campaign manager Genera Peck's shoulders. Because the reality is, is that a candidate owns his campaign. But nevertheless, the problem with being a campaign manager is that when things go badly with a campaign and things look mismanaged, you usually get blamed for it. And that's what's happened here. Now, James Uthmeyer is his chief of staff in his official office. Uh, Last week, he came in, uh, was tasked by DeSantis to say, hey, find out what's going on, see what problems there are and whether you can fix them. He did that. He reviewed the budget. He reviewed the financials. He looked at their strategic plan. And he also talked to staffers. And when he came back to DeSantis, DeSantis then turned to him and said, hey, why don't you run it? And it was difficult for his chief of staff to say no. As you had pointed out, James Uthmeyer is quite a loyalist for Ron DeSantis. So if the governor asks him to do something, he's going to do it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the money there, because uh, another thing that obviously stood out when you look at the DeSantis campaign is that out of that $9.2 million that they raised entering July, the campaign mistakenly reported about $2.6 million of it, which can't be used in the Republican primary. It could only be used if he makes it to the general uh, election. I mean, what does something like that say about how the campaign is being run when it comes to what donors are concerned about, which is how they're spending money? That's a good question. It's one of those mysteries. From what I was able to tease out and what I reported today in The Messenger was that only in the final weeks of the quarter that ended July 1st or ended at the end of June, was that they had miscalculated how much money was coming in. And one of the reasons they did that is they were, they were banking what they thought were pledges that were going to come in that never came. Now, pledges are kind of like, in Mary Poppins' terms, these pie-crust promises. They're easily made and easily broken. Now the DeSantis campaign is going back to some of those people and said, hey, look, you pledged this stuff in the past. We've made all these changes. We really need your money. Won't you give it to us? Now, what we're being told is that that money is coming in But we've heard that the money was coming in before, that the ship was being righted. It hasn't been quite true. But maybe it's a new day in Tallahassee. We're going to find out. You've covered DeSantis for a long time, obviously politics in Florida generally. Are you surprised to see how his presidential campaign is struggling to translate the success that he had in Florida, which is obvious, but translating that to a national level? 
Yes and no. I, DeSantis is a very smart individual. Uh, he can press a lot of information quickly. He can mount an argument. Uh, he can deal with multiple inputs. Uh, he can give and take with the best of them. But the problem that DeSantis had is he was sort of a victim of his own success. He won Florida by almost 20 percentage points, like a historic margin for his reelection. And he became such a powerful governor. And he created such a system around him where, you know, his word was basically law. He had a Republican legislature that obeyed his every whim, and they essentially bent to his will. And so as a result, he never really created a structure where he was ever really challenged. He hates the news media, especially the national news media, so he didn't really have to deal with them. So he felt he could sort of create his own reality, it appears, and only launched his campaign and stubbornly refused to change his campaign by only talking to conservative media and not engaging in that sort of give and take with the broader national media, which is still a bread and butter of the nation finding out who you are. Now, that doesn't mean for a Republican that he has to agree with everything that he thinks the liberal media, in his words, are going to say, but it does mean that his supporters and people who could be potential supporters want to see him think on his feet argue back and mount an argument. And he wasn't doing that. He's doing that now. And as I just said a minute ago, we're going to see if it works. There is a debate right now about whether it's too late or whether there's still time. I think it's probably the late side of early uh, that there still could be time. But the fact of the matter is, outside of DeSantis having his own problems, the biggest problem Ron DeSantis has is the same problem all of these Republican candidates have in the primary. It's Donald Trump. He has a very high floor and he's able to get to 40 or 50%. If you can get to 50%, obviously he wins. But even at 40%, if you have a multiple candidate primary, it's really hard to beat a guy like that. And DeSantis and everyone else is finding that out. As you said, we'll see if the third time is the charm. Mark Caputo, great reporting. Thank you. Thank you. A U.S. Army officer who worked in the Trump administration says his, quote, blood ran cold when he read these two parts of the special counsel's indictment. He'll join me next to explain why he believes the military could have been forced to make a choice between defying orders or turning their weapons on civilians. Tonight, a former Army officer who was a top aide to John Kelly when he ran the Department of Homeland Security says, and I'm quoting him now, that his blood ran cold when he read two parts of this latest Trump indictment. In his piece for The Dispatch, titled An Unthinkable Choice, Kevin Carroll says that if Trump and his co-conspirators were successful with what they set out to do, it would have put the military in an impossible position, either defy their orders or turn their weapons on civilians. Tonight, Kevin Carroll is joining me. He is a former DHS official, CIA officer, and former senior counsel to John Kelly at the Homeland Department of Homeland Security, as we noted there. Thanks so much, Kevin, uh, for being here. I mean, that quote really stuck out to me. You said your blood ran cold when you read this indictment. Why? Caitlin, it was a terrible prospect. Um, it's just two paragraphs in the, the lengthy indictment, but it's clear that Jeff, um, that John Eastman, who is the academic uh, uh, mind behind this idea to have Vice President Pence negate the votes, um, and the assistant attorney general, Jeff Clark, who President Trump planned to name acting attorney general, uh, knew that riots would result if Vice President Pence did what they suggested. And they anticipated that the Insurrection Act would be invoked by the president and that violence would result, that the basically federal armed forces or nationalized, uh, federalized National Guardsmen would have to put down protests in American cities with force. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're saying when you're referring to, to Jeffrey Clark, uh, obviously, he talked about invoking the Insurrection Act. John Eastman had this kind of callous response when he was warned about 
his actions potentially causing causing riots in the streets. It, it basically sounds like you're worried that the outcome could have been a lot worse uh, than it even was in that period. The, the outcome would have been terrible, um, however the matter was resolved. Uh, senior military officials would have been put in the position of having to decide, uh, do we disobey a facially lawful order from the president of the United States because the Insurrection Act does give the president uh, quite a bit of latitude uh, to, to use force to uh, keep the federal law in operation out in the states? Um, or uh, would they, for a bad purpose, uh, to try to keep someone in the White House who had lost the election, use force on, on American citizens? And it's inevitable in this day and age that if there's a really large protest, uh, there's going to be some vandals, there's going to be some looters, there's going to be some arsonists. So it's certain that there would have been a confrontation between you know, young American troops who probably wouldn't have had much training in, in civil unrest um, and American citizens. And, and tragedy would have resulted in a way that would have changed our country. Again, either through the military no, disobeying a presidential order uh, or through shedding innocent blood. And you're essentially saying that the the harm of, of what could have happened and the potential outcomes here, that that should be taken into account for his sentencing, of course. That's if he's convicted. We don't, we don't know where this trial is going to go yet or when it's even going to happen potentially. But, I mean, it sounds like you think that he should he should go to jail. Yes. And if he's convicted, you know, it's, it's a fraud and a conspiracy case. Uh, and part of the conspiracy here uh, was to misuse the United States military against American citizens to try to keep someone in office who'd lost the election. Um, and when the government takes its position on sentencing and, and when the judge, if there's a conviction, uh, decides what the sentence should be, I think they have to look at the, the fact that if this plan had gone forward, you would have had terrible harm. Uh, to the United States military as an institution, uh, to our, our republic as a democracy in which the military is supposed to be and has been uh, subservient to civilian control, and to the, the young service members and, and the young protesters you know, who, who would have um, tragically uh, been at the sharp end of this. Safe to say that you would never serve in another Trump administration? <laughs> That's a very, very safe prediction, Caitlin. Kevin Carroll, thank you for, for joining us on this piece in the dispatch tonight. Thank you. A new hearing date, speaking of Trump's indictment there, has just been set after a back and forth over the two teams, over the handling of evidence in the case and what can and can't be said about it. What the judge still needs to decide as Trump is on the campaign trail lashing out against the special counsel, prosecutors in Georgia, and everyone in between. Next. Tonight, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin is rejecting a request from the Trump legal team and has now scheduled a hearing for 10 a.m. this Friday to talk with both sides about what rules should be imposed for handling of evidence in that investigation by the special counsel into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump does not have to go in person on Friday. I should note his appearance has been waived. But today on the campaign trail, he was complaining about how his legal problems are affecting his presidential run. I won't be able to go to Iowa today. I won't be able to go to New Hampshire today because I'm sitting in a courtroom on bullshit because his attorney general charged me with something. Terrible. 
With me to discuss all of this is senior legal analyst and former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig. Ellie, we won't make you uh, weigh in on those comments there. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but what do you make of this decision by, like, what do you read into Judge Chutkin saying, no, I'm not going to give you until next Monday or Tuesday, as the Trump team had requested. Let's do this on Friday. It's a completely fair decision. Uh, prosecutors wanted to go in ASAP. Trump's team wanted till next week, and she said, let's do it Friday. And th this is a mini skirmish that's really going to foreshadow much bigger battles we have ahead about timing, because you can see the dynamic. Trump's team wants to push off as far as possible. Prosecutors want to pull as quick as possible, and the judge is going to have to find a middle ground. Okay, but this is pretty—I I was talking to a, a source in Trump world earlier, and I was saying this is actually pretty standard this early on in a criminal prosecution to decide, here's what you can and yeah. cannot say publicly about what we are sharing with you of evidence in the case. I mean, it could be transcripts from witnesses who went before the grand jury. It could be a lot of information. Really important distinction. The judge is not deciding to shut Donald Trump up entirely. It may get to that point if he keeps making comments like that. All the judge is saying is you can't take the evidence in this case, the discovery, the grand jury transcripts, the witness information, and blast it out over true social. And the judge is going to decide what the parameters are of that. But yeah, that's a really important distinction here. And the federal grand jury that is investigating here, the one that handed down the indictment last week, they yeah. met again today. Yeah. I mean, clearly they're still investigating because there's six unindicted co-conspirators. What is this? It's got to be that. I mean, look, prosecutors always love to say the investigation's ongoing. It's clear that means something here. It's not just boilerplate. Yeah, look, there are six people named as co-conspirators. Prosecutors don't do that lightly. When you call someone a co-conspirator, what you're saying is we believe this person was part of the crime and in on it. And so there is a continuing investigation, all indications, including Paula Reed's reporting that Bernie Kerrick was in there mm -hmm. being questioned about Rudy Giuliani. Tell me that their next focus on those six co-conspirators. Big question, by the way, is if they are going to indict them, do they add them to the Trump indictment or do them separately? If they add them to the Trump indictment, that's going to be a big problem for timing. Yeah, we'll see what that looks like. But also today, Trump was railing against this or the district county, the district attorney in Fulton yeah. County. Fonnie Willis, I mean, he was going after her in, in terms that we're not going to, to play what he right. said about her uh, today. But he was going after her. But we have learned from Sarah Murray just now that she is expected to present her case to the grand jury starting next week. That's going to take about 48 hours, we believe. I mean, how soon do you think Trump could see be facing another indictment? It, I, look, it looks clear it's going to be very soon. could be next week. When you're at this phase, you're really in endgame. And remember, Fonnie Willis has already put all her evidence into this special grand jury that wrapped up a couple months ago. She can just go in to this grand jury now and summarize it. I do have to say, because I just feel obligated every time Trump goes on one of these rants, you're right not to play it. Don't give it air. But what he says here is disgraceful. It's grotesque. It's dangerous. I'm out of adjectives. But I do feel it's really important to call this out every time he attacks our judicial system, our prosecutors, our judges. Yeah, I mean, he's not just attacking Fonnie Willis. He's saying she's politically motivated in what she's doing here. But he also says that you know, he's attacking the judge that is going to his attorneys are going to be before on Friday. Obviously, he goes after Jake, Jack Smith essentially every day yeah. at breakfast. I mean, what is that like when Trump's attorneys are in the room with Judge Chutkin on Friday oh, trying to have this, this discussion? Here's the thing. You do have a right as a criminal defendant to criticize your judge, your prosecutor. I've been criticized in public by people I've prosecuted. That's fine. It's a First Amendment right. But at a certain point, when you cross a line into threats, into potentially tampering with witnesses or your jury pool, remember, everyone's watching this. They're part of the jury pool. Then it's up to the prosecutors. I mean, normal citizens can't go to a judge and say, you need to put a stop to this. Only prosecutors can do that or the judge can do it herself. But gosh, I can't even imagine how difficult it is to yeah. try to be the lawyer for this client. The other thing that stood out to me today when he was in New Hampshire yeah. uh, is he said this. This is a quote. He said, there was never a second of any day that I didn't believe that it was a rigged election. 
I've never heard him say something like that before. Obviously, we listened to, to a lot of his speeches. But we looked at the indictment. Jack Smith opens the indictment by saying Trump knew that he had lost at least 30 times in it. He references Trump's, quote, knowingly false claims. Do you think this is a defense tactic that we are seeing from Trump? 100 percent. That's going to be a crucial battleground in this case. By the way, I think the most important piece of evidence in that indictment, one of them, is when Donald Trump's talking about claims that Sidney Powell has made about election fraud. And Donald Trump says those claims are, and I quote, crazy. That's going to be a key battleground throughout this case. A lot of key battlegrounds that we have here. For Luckily, sure. we have you, Ellie Honig, to help break them down. You. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. We were just speaking of co-conspirators. One of them, Trump co-conspirator number one, Rudy Giuliani, has now been accused of making excuses like, the dog ate my homework to avoid complying with a lawsuit about election lies. More on that excuse next. Excuses, excuses. Smartmatic, the voting technology company that is suing Fox News for lies about the 2020 election, is now putting Rudy Giuliani on blast for allegedly making up stories, they say, to avoid turning over documents. In a new court filing, Smartmatic says, quote, the dog ate my homework. Since the dawn of time, people have made up excuses to avoid doing things they do not want to do. This is exactly what Giuliani has done here. We should note CNN has reached out to Giuliani's attorney for comment. We have not yet heard back. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Primetime with Laura Coates starts right now. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.